This morning in our Voice of the Martyrs Global Prayer Guide, I bring to your attention brothers and sisters in Christ who are in the country of Sri Lanka. So please pray for our Christian brethren in the land of Sri Lanka. Voice of the Martyrs designates Sri Lanka as hostile. The island nation of Sri Lanka off the eastern coast of India is still rebuilding from a civil war that ended in 2009. The government has put significant efforts into resettling those displaced during the conflict between the majority Buddhist Sinhalese population and the Hindu Tamil separatists. There are strong churches in the country as well as parachurch organizations that provide Bible training, theological education, and mission training. Churches in Sri Lanka are actively sending missionaries to other countries in South Asia. Sri Lanka remains very much a nation divided. Hinduism is prevalent in the north, while Buddhism dominates the south. Buddhist monks are the primary persecutors, stirring up communities against the Christians who live amongst them. Hindus also oppose evangelism and conversion to Christianity. Christians can openly gather and worship in Sri Lanka, however. Recently, the government stated that churches must, however, be officially registered. You know what that's all about. When Buddhists and local governments feel threatened, they sometimes attack a pastor or his home. Strong Christian leadership programs as well as mission-sending agencies exist throughout Sri Lanka. There is a Bible society in Sri Lanka, and Bibles are uh, readily available. Voice of the Martyrs supports training for missionaries, pastors, and church planters. So please pray for Christian believers who are in the island nation of Sri Lanka. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for life and salvation in you. We pray for our brothers and sisters in Sri Lanka. We pray for their religious freedom and their liberty. We pray that you will give them safety from their persecutors. And by the power of your spirit, you will inspire them to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ in spite of any and all opposition, which we know they are, even as we pray, even as we speak. Our thoughts, our hearts, our prayers are with them. Help us by way of Voice of the Martyrs or other ministries to help them with physical resources as they may need. Please make these needs. Uh, let us be aware some way, somehow, of how we can truly help our brothers and sisters in this country. And we pray for everyone around the world who's been watching and listening to these teachings of your word, many of them in countries where there is hostility and persecution to Christianity. We pray that you will bless them and protect them and lead them and guide them by the power of your spirit, draw them closer to you. And we do pray for their peace and for their safety. And we pray that you will give us the resolve and the courage that we need to face the persecution that is coming our way. May everything that is said and done here this morning bring praise and honor and glory to you. May the meditations of all of our hearts and the words of my mouth be pleasing to you, O Lord our God, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' holy name, amen. Would you stand please for the reading of the word of the Lord, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 to 14. Rather lengthy text to unpack this morning for us. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 to 14. The overall theme of the letter uh, I'm sorry, this portion of the text we'll uh, explore this morning, be imitators of God. Therefore be imitators of God, 
as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. But do not let immorality or any impurity or greed even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which is not fitting, but rather the giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous person who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the children of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. And do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, Awake, sleeper, and rise from the dead, and the Christ will shine on you. These are the words of the Lord. Thanks be to God for them. Thank you, folks. You may be seated. Now the therefore... Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. The word therefore in chapter 5 verse 1, of course, refers to the truth that Paul taught us in chapter 4. The truth concluded at the end of chapter 4. Because, or therefore, because we forgive others, because God and Christ forgave us, because this motivates our ethical conduct towards other Christians, etc. Therefore, be imitators of God. You are now a child of God because God and Christ forgave us and gave us new life. So now in that new life, imitate God as a beloved child of God. Imitate, emulate our Heavenly Father, our spiritual Father. So let's all unpack what this is all about. Verse 1, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Imitate. Mime omai the word he uses for imitate in the original language. That is probably the ancient Koine Greek word by which we come by the English word mimic. To copy, to imitate, to emulate. Mimeomai means just that. Emulate, imitate. But also it, it actually means follow after. Someone, uh, follow after someone in order to copy or imitate or emulate their behavior. Again, uh, well, let me give you this. This is interesting. First century Jews, first century Judaism, not necessarily first century Jewish Christians, but in first century Judaism, uh, first century Jews used this word, mimeomai, because, of course, they had to speak Koine Greek as well, being under the rule of the Roman Empire. And they used this word to simply describe following after God. If you're following after God, then therefore you are what? You're emulating Him. You're imitating Him. If you're imitating Him and emulating Him, then you're following after Him, following closely after Him, following after or imitating His righteous ways or behavior. So Paul says, do this as a way of life. In the original language, he is writing in... Uh, picking apart grammar for you for a moment. He's writing in the present ongoing tense. 
So follow after God and imitate and emulate Him as a way of life. That's what he's saying. Do this always every day that you live. Imitate God always. Let this be a major characteristic of your life. And he writes, And walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave Himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. He bids us to love one another as God loves and walk in love. Let love be a characteristic of the way that we live our lives. And of course, the word that he uses there is agape. Love which is a gift from God. Love which is of the very nature and character of God that he gives as a gift to us. And as we receive this love as a gift from God and receive the new birth, then therefore we are to reciprocate this type of love to God and in particularly to our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. We are to exercise that love within the family of God. That's the essence or epitome of life within the Christian family, the church. Agape love, self-sacrificial love. It is of the very nature and character of God himself. You see what his reasoning and his rationale is, his logic? When you love this way, you are imitating God. You are therefore following after God. Paul is calling on believers to emulate God and display the image, as he says, of the Heavenly Father. And, of course, Christ Jesus himself led the way in modeling and showing us how to do this. Jesus is always the standard, the model, par excellence for all behavior for Christian believers. Verse 2, again, more upon walk in love. And walk in love. Live your life in love. Let agape love be the chief characteristic of in the Christian community of the way in which you Christian folks are living your lives. Just as or because Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us as an offering, a sacrifice to God, a fragrant aroma. So walk in love. Again, live your life, your way of life, in or by way of agape love for one another. Just as Christ also loved you. Simple enough, isn't it? Or it should be. Because Christ first loved us with agape love, so we are to love other believers with agape love. Christ himself is our chief motivation. And as Paul writes, and gave himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. So again, as always, Jesus himself is the ultimate model and example for us. Jesus willingly sacrificing himself for our salvation serves as the ultimate hallmark and example for what real or as some folks wish to say, true love is all about. He laid down his life as the atoning sacrifice to win, to procure our forgiveness and bring us into right relationship with God. When Paul says Christ gave himself up for us as an offering and a sacrifice, does that language sound familiar? If you know your Old Testament, it should. He is obviously using Old Testament, Old Covenant language. He is referring to the Old Testament or Old Covenant sacrificial system, which all pointed to the coming of the Christ, which all pointed to the ultimate sacrifice for human sin, Jesus the Messiah himself. As John the Baptizer would say, the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sin of the world. And then Paul makes a very interesting remark, which is also very Old Testament, as a fragrant aroma, that is, as a sacrifice that receives God's approval and is vindicated, accepted by God, God the Father. So Paul again is, of course, referring to the Old Covenant sacrifices for sin, which were said to be a pleasing aroma to God. You will find this phrase many times in the Old Testament, referring to acceptable sacrifices to God from His faithful covenant people. 
These sacrifices were said to be a pleasing aroma to him. And physically, that was probably so. These sacrifices were often offered along with burning incense. Paul is stating here that Christ the Messiah was the ultimate sacrifice for human sin. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, as his herald and his cousin John the Baptizer said. Christ's sacrifice was perfectly pleasing to the Father and perfectly effective and perfectly sufficient for the forgiveness of our sins for redemption. Verse 3, But do not let immorality or any impurity or greed even be named among you as is proper among saints. So now more moral or ethical exhortations he gives us. Ethical exhortations for life for Christian believers. More attitudes, more conduct, behaviors that he confronts us with that are improper and inconsistent with believers, the believer's new identity in Christ. And Paul warns us against, do not let immorality. You will find various translations in various English translations of the New Testament. The original word he uses is porneia. Sound familiar? That is a word by which we come by the English word pornography. You can translate it as sexual immorality. And many translations are translating as just that these days. Absolutely none of that whatsoever is to be found in the life of a believer, in the life of the Christian church. A very serious problem in the first century A.D. and obviously a very serious problem now. The term porneia is used very broadly. No nitpicking here. No splitting hairs. It is used very broadly here to include any form of sexual immorality or perversion. Any form. Again, enormous, an enormous problem in the pagan world for the first century church. And sadly, it is still an enormous problem in the darkening, corrupt, and pagan society that we are confronted with today. One of the reasons Christianity is, was hated in the first century A.D. was their stand for what we call biblical morality or Christian morality. And this is one of the reasons why Christians and Christianity are hated all the more today. Because we stand for what is traditionally called Christian, Judeo-Christian, or biblical morality. Therefore, we are hated all the more for our stand today. Um, it's very interesting that <laughs> looking back upon history uh, at the time that this letter was written and of course afterwards even some of the pagan philosophers were starting to speak out about the rampant immorality in the first century AD throughout the Greco-Roman world even the pagans were beginning to see how destructive this was to culture and society the pagan uh, stoic philosophers in particular we're speaking about, the, out, about this in the first century. What a problem it was. And it's interesting that here and there, there are even some unbelievers in our own society and culture that are beginning to see how destructive this is. The chaos that this is bringing upon us. And even some unbelievers are beginning to speak out against this sort of thing. And how dangerous and destructive it is in our society. The second thing that Paul warns about is any impuria. Hakarthasia. This is a difficult one. Hakatharsia. In the original language. It's kind of an ugly word. It was a bit difficult for Scott to pronounce just then. And it's a bit of a grim word. 
There are various ways that you could arguably translate this word into English, but one word is filth. Strong word. Filth. Broadly used here in this context to mean anything that you can arguably design, uh, uh, define as moral filth or moral evil, moral impurity, any vile, immoral, or sinful act or evil act. This covers a very wide array of immoral or wicked conduct and behaviors. Next, Paul mentions greed. That's pretty specific. Pleonexia means covetous desire, insatiable greed, a very strong negative desire to acquire more and more and more and more of something, yet never satisfied. That type of greed. Could be money. Could be anything. Do not let these behaviors even be named among you as is proper among saints. You see what he's saying here? Proper life for and among Christian saints is that these things should never even be mentioned as taking place amongst you. Practiced by no proper saint of God among you. These sins should not even be hinted at amongst the Christian community. Any outsider should have absolutely no reason to suggest that any such thing is practiced within the Christian church or the Christian community. That's what he's saying. Verse 4, And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which is not fitting, but rather the giving of gratitude or the giving of thanks. And you will find various uh, English translations for this verse as well. You could arguably translate the opening of this verse as, and there must be no obscene behavior and silly talk, foolish talk, coarse, vulgar, jesting, etc. Now he uses three terms in the original language that we find in this verse. And these three terms in the original Greek, obscene behavior, silly, foolish talk, base or coarse jesting, it's interesting that these terms are only found here in the New Testament. This is the only place in the New Testament where these three wicked behaviors or foolish behaviors are, are mentioned. These things as well are not proper or fitting for Christian believers. It's unworthy or shameful conduct. shouldn't be found amongst us. The pagan unbelievers behave this way all of the time. That's what Paul is saying. Uh, not those who are to emulate or imitate God. Now I should bring to your notice again, he uses these terms in, in this context very, very broadly. These terms cover a very wide array of improper conduct. And we probably should think about this verse and how broadly he uses these terms. Absolutely anything that you could arguably define as obscene behavior, don't do it. There's no place for it. Absolutely anything that you could define as silly, foolish, or the word is strong, even stupid talk or conversation, don't do that. Have nothing to do with that. Base or coarse jesting, that is, uh, you know, obscene or uh, vulgar jokes, don't do that. That is not fitting or proper conduct or conversation for Christian believers. Um, but rather, or instead, he writes, we should be giving thanks. Instead, we should be... Uh, what he's saying is not necessarily that you're literally praying, giving thanks all the time, which you should as much as you possibly can. Pray without ceasing, Paul says. Almost in your stream of consciousness thinking, talk to God and be praying. 
the what he means, uh, instead of that type of conversation, we should be speaking expression of thanks and gratitude towards God and praise and worship towards God in the way that we speak, in the way that we talk, in conversations amongst Christian believers. Uh, he's saying, rather, you Christian believer, you should be known by this. You should be known or characterized by thanksgiving and gratitude to God in your speech and your conversations. This is proper and fitting behavior for Christian believers. And here's his logic and his reasoning. If we live, truly live a life of thanks and gratitude to God, then we will live a life that is fitting and proper before God. If you're living a life that is fitting and proper before God, then you're going to be living a life of thanks and gratitude towards God. Verse 5, For this you know with certainty, that no immoral and impure person or covetous man, covetous person, who is an idolater. Isn't that interesting? He calls them idolaters on top of everything else. Because of these sins, they're guilty of idolatry too. These people do not have any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. So the pagan unbelievers who do not possess new life in Christ, those who live an evil or debauched life, as Paul's been describing, they, of course, have absolutely no place in the kingdom of Christ and of God, Paul is saying. You, Christian believer, you do, if you are truly a recipient of the new birth. You are redeemed. You have new life in Christ. You have a new identity in Christ. Never forget that identity. You have an inheritance in that kingdom. Therefore, live like it. Live like Christ's redeemed kingdom people, serving God with holy, proper living, with a heart full of gratitude to God for what He's done for us by way of Christ. And notice... He calls the unbelievers idolaters. Let me read this verse for you again. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man or person who is an idolater. You see what he's saying there? They worship their sins, so they're an idolater. They worship themselves, so they're an idolater. They worship themselves and their sins rather than God. Therefore, they are guilty of idolatry on top of all the rest as well. Only those who know and honor God as God will enter the kingdom of God. Theologian Peter O'Brien writes, he makes a good quote upon this text, I'll give to you, quote, Those who have given themselves over to the immorality, impurity, greed, etc. that Paul warns of, even if they call themselves Christians, they show by their behavior that they are excluded from eternal life. End quote. They do not truly possess what they profess. You can tell those who will inherit the kingdom of God by their conduct, by their behavior, by the way they live their life. By their fruits you will know them, Jesus said. A good tree will bear good fruit and a bad tree will bear bad fruit. By their fruit you will know them. Verse 6, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons, or you could translate as well, the children of disobedience. So this is something of a warning against false teachers, isn't it? He's warning against false teachers and teachings who use empty words, empty, vain words, lies, deceit, to justify the immoral and sinful behaviors that Paul warns against. That's what he's saying. There will come along false teachers, and with their false teaching full of empty words, they will try to excuse the behaviors that I'm warning you against. They will try to condone the behaviors that I'm warning you against. They will try to justify these things. They do now, do they not? They do now, do they not? 
Oh, they most certainly do. Empty words, Paul writes. Kenos logos. Kenos, empty, vain, foolish, fruitless, false. Empty words of lies and deceit. To justify, to condone these evil and immoral practices. As Paul writes, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons or the children of disobedience. These things, these vices, these evil behaviors mentioned by Paul, those who practice them and those who condone them and promote them, they are children of disobedience, deserving of the wrath and the judgment of God. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. They will inherit judgment. And my conscience really preys upon me heavily these days because I really believe we really need to start proclaiming the judgment of God these days because I think it is coming in more ways than one. God is not mocked. What you sow, you will reap. And God is the God of absolute justice in this world and in the next. Verses 7 and 8, let's unpack them together. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. For This is interesting what he says. It's really rather frightening. You were formerly darkness, but now you are light. There's the good news. Light in the Lord. That's full of meaning as well. Walk as children of light. So, uh, unpacking verses 7 and 8 together so we don't divide Paul's uh, flow of his thought here. Paul calls on unbelievers, of course, to have nothing to do with the sinful lifestyles of those who do not know the Lord and who live lives of rebellion, of disobedience against the sovereign God. Those who, um, those who have new life in Christ have a new identity. Never forget your new identity. That's what he's saying. Live according to your new identity. And this is to be reflected in the way believers live out there, as we say, daily life. You were formerly darkness. That's very interesting. This is what we were before our salvation. And notice he says, you, uh, he doesn't say you were formerly in darkness. He doesn't say that. He says you were darkness. You were part of the darkness before your salvation. Dark and dead in mind and soul. This is, the, this is what's at the core of the being of those who do not possess salvation in Christ. Darkness. It is rather sobering and frightening. This condition is perhaps even worse than what we at first may want to confess or realize. In the end, Paul's saying once again, and you find that we are confronted with this truth over and over and over throughout the sacred scriptures. In the end, human beings will be one of two things. You will be light or you will be darkness. You will be part of the light or you will be part of the darkness. There's no twilight in between. In the end, it is one or the other. There is no third option. But you, Christian believer, assuming you are truly a recipient of the new birth, you believers, you brothers and sisters that I'm writing to, you are light in the Lord. Walk, peripateo, that is live your daily life, your daily life walk. As children of light, believers are now light because they have been given life. 
in the core of their being, in the core of their soul, because of their restored relationship with God, with Christ. He or she who is light. All that light means, all that light brings, all that light represents. Spiritual light in particular. Because we have the indwelling Spirit of God, we have He who is light at the core of our being. No longer darkness. We are light, now notice this, in the Lord. Inherently or intrinsically, we are not the light. We are given the light as a gift of God, a gracious and merciful gift of God. We don't inherently or intrinsically have light in ourselves, only darkness. God is the light, the source of light, the giver of light. We are light in the Lord. Paul is saying we are light only by way of Christ, only by way of the Lord, only by virtue of our identity in Him and new life in Him are we light. As Jesus Himself said in John eight twelve, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Therefore, walk as children of light. Live as children of light, for so you are, if you really are. Live in a way that is truly consistent with who you are in Christ Jesus, a person of light, a redeemed image bearer of God. Verses 9 and 10, we'll keep them together in unpacking it so we don't disrupt Paul's flow of thought. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. So Paul now tells us that living out one's new life and identity in Christ consists in exercising and demonstrating these virtuous character traits that Paul is teaching. Traits that are characteristic, again, of God himself. We must live out, demonstrate, as Paul says, goodness, righteousness, and truth. Goodness, righteousness, truth. And these things... These truths are what Paul calls fruit of the light, produce of the light, a product of living a light, life of light. Goodness, righteousness, and truth, he writes, are the fruit, again, the fruit, the product, the produce of a light of life, a life lived in the light, the light of he who is the light and the source of all light. Goodness is Apetotsune, it means good or righteous deeds. It's an active word, by the way. It's not a passive word. It's a very active word. Doing good, doing righteous deeds, doing good actions, performing good works, living out, exercising, demonstrating good behavior. Very active word. Righteousness, dikaiosune, means fairness, justice, virtue, upstanding in character and integrity, truth, aletheia. In this context, probably means true reality. What is pure from all error or falsehood? God's true reality. Reality as established and defined by God. Huge battle in our day and age. That's why you're having so much darkness and chaos in our culture and society. Because sinful human beings believe that they can literally create their own reality. That is madness. That is chaos. That is destruction. There is only one true reality. And that one true reality is established by the one true living God, Father, Son, and Spirit. He is the source of all true reality. And as Paul writes in verse 10, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. This is a way of life as well. This is how we should spend our lives, every day of our lives. Trying actively, active word, trying, working, to learn what is pleasing to God. God to the Lord. Verse 11, 
And do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. You don't just turn a blind eye to it, you confront it. You don't just turn a blind eye to evil, you call it out. You confront it. And do not join with them in their fruitless deeds of darkness. Do you see what he's using this Par- the parable of the imagery of the parable of the good tree and the, and the bad tree from Jesus' parable. A good tree will be known by its good fruits. That's to be you. You're the good tree producing the good fruit in comparison to the unbelievers, the pagans, who are bad trees producing bad fruit. Do not be a bad tree producing poisonous fruit. That's what he's saying, which are deeds of darkness coming from those who are part of the darkness. But you, rather, Christian, living in the light, a good tree producing good fruit, fruit, you are to confront this. You are to expose this. Do not join the pagan unbelievers in their evil behaviors that Paul formerly described and warned against, but rather expose them. Do not join their evil, confront it. Do not join their evil, take a stand against it. Do not join their evil, expose it. Verse 12, for the things performed by them in secret are shameful even to mention. Now this, I enjoyed studying this verse, really unpacking it this week, because this may mean something a little more or a little different than what it may mean at a surface or cursory reading for us today. Usually people, uh, right off the bat, if I may use that expression, think that this means sexual immorality or all of the sins and evil behaviors that he described previously. That's more than a distinct possibility, but it may mean also this, the occult dabbling in sorcery or black magic or occultic practices. For the things performed by them in secret are shameful even to mention. Now is this the secretive conduct of Christians who really aren't Christians, the secretive conduct and behavior of unbelievers? Probably both. A little more commentary needed there. And also remember Paul very much lived in the shame and honor culture of the time. These are things that even the pagans at times if they have a shred of decency left, will find shameful. But many uh, biblical scholars mean uh, or believe that Paul might be referring to the occult, to pagan occultic religious practices. Because in the first century A.D., in the occult world, their bizarre and even very perverse or evil or violent religious practices were called the secret arts were called the secret practices. So on top of all of the other sins, Paul might be referring to those who practice sorcery, black magic, who dabble in the secret arts of of the occult, have absolutely nothing to do with that whatsoever because it is too shameful to even think or talk about, Paul says. Verse 13. Or, pardon me. Yes, verse 13. Sorry. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. Or let me offer you this translation. Whereas everything that is exposed by the light comes into plain view. That's what he's saying. Whereas everything that is exposed by the light, the light of God, the light of God's truth, the light of God's true reality, the light of God's word, all of it comes into plain view when God's light is shone upon it. Everything that exposed by the light, the light of God's truth and true reality, it will all be brought into plain view. 
everything that is going on in the world around you, view it through the lens of God's Word. View it through the lens of God's truth. This will shine a light upon everything around you, and it will bring it into clear focus. It will expose what needs to be exposed. It will chase away darkness that needs to be chased away. And it will bring things into clear view, in plain view and focus for you. Verse 14, for this reason, and he offers a quote, a citation. For this reason, it says, awake sleeper and rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. It's rather a very simple and beautiful and poetic way of really encapsulating the gospel in just a few lines. Awake, sleeper, dead in sin, rise from the dead, new life in Christ. And Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, God the Son, will shine His light upon you and all that that means. Now this is very interesting here. Paul's giving you something again of a quote. A citation, but what is it? Where is this quote found? What, what passage is he quoting as a citation? Make a long story short, this quote is not found in the Bible. It's not a specific quote that's found in the Bible. And theologians have been scratching their heads over this and debating this for 2,000 years. Now, I will say, many believe that Paul is offering you something of a conflation. He's taking ideas and truth concepts from numerous passages of the Old Testament and he's sort of conflating them together in this little phrase that he's quoting. And uh, many Bible scholars believe he's quoting various passages from the prophecies of Isaiah. Perhaps yes, perhaps no, there's the debate. But many uh, Bible scholars also believe, and I, I do believe there's, uh, there's much to recommend this interpretation as well. He's probably quoting an early Christian hymn that is based on the gospel that is based on scriptural truth or the biblical truth, the truth of Jesus, the truth of the good news of Jesus. He's quoting an early Christian hymn that the early church was using at this time. And it is, of course, is inspired. Uh, an early hymn, a creed, a song, some type of liturgy that the remainder of it's not now known to us. It does, however, of course, express biblical truth. It expresses the truth of the gospel. And therefore, Paul using it here, it becomes part of inspired Scripture. This many believe to be the case here. It is proclaiming the gospel truth message of Christ, isn't it? Let's read it again. It's simple enough to understand, simple enough to explain. So he closes this particular passage with a little encapsulation of the gospel. It says, this creed, this song, that you all know. Perhaps he's quoting something that they sing every single Sunday or every time the Lord's Supper is taken. Or this may have been part of a baptismal hymn. Some have believed or have speculated. Awake, sleeper. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Sleep is a metaphor for death, often in Scripture and in the ancient world. Wake up, you who are dead. Wake up, sleeper, dead in your sin, and rise from the dead. Rise from your life 
of darkness and death in sin. Receive life in Christ by way of the person and work of Christ. The life that He brings. And Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, the Son of God, who is God the Son, He will shine on you. He will give you life. He will, give, he will empower you to live the life of new identity in Christ. He will shine light on your life. He will reveal all to you. He will make things clear to you. He will shine the light of God's true reality on you for you to live your life in. That's what he's saying. Never forget that, Christian believer. Last word of the day I give to Brother Clinton Arnold from his wonderful commentary. Quote, If we awake and rise to new life in Christ, as Paul urges us to do, Paul, by way of this quote, is telling us that what? Christ will shine on you. If you do this, if you experience this, you will have this and receive this. If you awake from the sleep of death and sin, Christ will shine on you. It's a wonderful thing to say. He's saying that the resurrected and ascended Christ, God the Son Himself, will shine on you. He will shine His light, the light of His presence, upon the believer. The light of the Christ, the light of the Messiah that shines upon believers is perhaps best understood here to be the empowering presence of the Lord Himself. The empowering presence of the Lord that helps the believer in their journey of discipleship that helps the believer to put away these evil behaviors and to take upon themselves successfully righteous behaviors. The empowering presence of the Lord that helps us on our journey of discipleship. It may well be another way of referring to the presence of the Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, who Paul told us earlier is grieved and offended when the believer sins. But he powerfully enables an obedient believer when we are willing to turn from sin and pursue the life of holiness that Paul proclaims in this passage. He's telling us to live a life of light. Oh my, do we need to be living lives of light now because the world around us is growing darker and darker by the day. Let your light shine, Christian believer. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, in Jesus' holy name, we thank you for the inspired words given to our great brother Paul. Help us by the truth of your word and by the power of your spirit, the light of the Lord which shines upon us and in us, to live our lives wisely and well, shunning the behaviors Paul warns us of and adopting and exercising and demonstrating the behaviors that he encourages us to have. Let everyone who hears the truth of your word translate these words truly into action in their life. May all that we do truly bring honor and glory to Jesus and his coming kingdom. In Christ Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. To dismiss, let's stand and sing hymn number 544. Have thine own way.